American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 6, The Albany Plan of Union. With one of my majors at the University of Kansas being history, I love history for the perspective that it gives us and the realization that many times an event in history is the next step in a chain or series of events. Everything is interconnected at some level. When we study history, it gives us the ability to trace the roots of an idea or a trend back to a time before its creators might have even known what they were actually making or talking about. With the Albany Plan of Union, we can see that even before independence was in the wildest dreams of the founders, the idea of union, even of a strong or stronger central government for the colonies based in North America and not England, had gained traction, was first manifested in Albany in 1754. Now, in the late 1740s, the French had made concerted attempts to dislodge the British out of the Ohio country, and by the spring of 1753, 2,000 French with their Indian allies were sent into the Ohio country to protect King Louis XV's holdings in that territory, and French forts were built in what is now modern-day Erie, Pennsylvania, and Waterford, Pennsylvania. At this point, Governor Dinwiddie of Virginia began to grow increasingly alarmed about the French involvement in Virginia's western lands, and no doubt part of his concern was the fact that if the French threw the British out of the Ohio country, many of the Virginia merchants' investments and income from the fur trade would suffer. So in the fall of 1753, Dinwiddie sent a young major of the Virginia militia by the name of George Washington to inform the French that they must leave the Ohio country. Of course, we know that Washington and his troops engaged in minor battles with the French, who of course had no intention of leaving the Ohio country. Now, we'll cover these incidents and the French and Indian War in more detail in the next podcast, but for our purposes now, it's important to know that in the early 1750s, the British crown saw a North American war with France as inevitable, and by 1754, things were already spiraling into armed conflict with France. Now, one of the British responses to the French threat on the western frontier of the colonies was to encourage the 13 colonies and the Indian tribes of the Great Lakes to come together as a more unified entity to meet the French threat. The British Board of Trade, which had substantial authority over colonial activity in North America, sent a letter to the Royal Governor James Delancey of New York in 1754, instructing Delancey to convene a conference of representatives from all 13 colonies to discuss the prospects of union. Charles Ponal, a biographer of Thomas Ponal, who attended the Albany Convention on behalf of the Board of Trade, described with a trace of sarcasm the British attitude toward the calling of such a convention. He wrote, The English government was so seriously alarmed by the report from Major Washington that it had to sacrifice its reluctance to permit representatives of the colonies to meet for the discussion of concerted action. Or to put it another way, the British would have preferred that the colonists not be in the same room talking to each other for fear of what might result. I mean, honestly... What could go wrong when dozens of the leading colonists met for days on end in the same room? But I digress. The Crown realized that the French were a much larger threat at the time and so allowed the convention to take place. Now, one of the people that would play a major role in the Albany Congress was a 40-something former printer and scientist turned politician, a Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Franklin was half of the team that drafted the Albany Plan of Union and would, of course, later become the revolutionary patriot we remember him to be. 
It's important to note, however, that at the time, Franklin was very much a loyal British subject, and I doubt the idea of independence of the colonies from England had even entered his mind. The other half of the team that drafted the Albany Plan of Union was Thomas Hutchinson, a representative from Massachusetts who would later become the royal governor of his home colony. Now, 20 years later, Franklin and Hutchinson would find themselves violently opposed to each other over the cause of independence. In a future podcast, I'll discuss Hutchinson in more detail because he and his family were longtime inhabitants of Massachusetts, yet Hutchinson was adamantly loyal to the crown. He was also very well acquainted with and interacted with men like John Adams, Sam Adams, John Hancock, and the Hutchinson family doctor was a man by the name of Dr. Joseph Warren, who would eventually become one of the first two major generals of the provincial colonial army. At the time that they created the Albany Plan, however, both Franklin and Hutchinson were loyal to the crown. They desired a stronger central colonial government, but they planned for it to be subject to the British monarchy. They did not intend to create anything inflammatory or revolutionary. Now, if we fast forward to a couple of decades later, when Franklin became a traitor to the British crown for the sake of American independence, and Hutchinson remained loyal to the crown until his last breath, but nonetheless, at the outbreak of the war with France, the two were able to unite for the cause of common defense and propose a system that would lay the foundation for the future of American democracy. In addition to Franklin and Hutchinson, another person who should be mentioned when discussing the Albany Plan is Thomas Ponall, a secretary from the British Board of Trade who attended the convention. Now, these three men would play crucial roles in the formation and chronicling of the Albany Plan. Historians have pointed to two major goals of the Albany Conference. First, to curry favor with the Indian tribes, specifically the Iroquois. The Board of Trade was intent on making sure the Iroquois did not take up the side of the French in the coming conflict. And second, to present a united front among all the colonies against the French in the north and west of the British territory in the New World. Now, officially, the Native American tribes of the Great Lakes region fell under what was called the protection of British colonial rule. In practice, though, they lived further west on the frontier than any substantial settlement, and thus lived virtually uninterrupted. But when violence with France began, British strategists acknowledged the potential for the Indians to become vital allies or dangerous enemies. In response, King George II sent gifts across the Atlantic to be given to the Indian chiefs in hopes of winning their loyalty to the British military cause. King George knowing that according to Indian customs, gifts were necessary to retain their allegiance, of course played by their rules in order to eliminate the additional threat that they could pose if they allied with the French. A second component of peacemaking with the Indians was the British need to construct forts on the western frontier, which was occupied by the Native Americans at the time. The French were more adept at forging relations with the Indians than the British were, and they had negotiated rights to build forts all over the Great Lakes region. Now, as they crept southward towards what is now Louisiana, threatening to enclose the British colonies on all three sides, the British hoped to counter the French expansion of forts by building forts of their own. But in order to do this, they had to negotiate land purchases with the native tribes. Since the chiefs of the Great Lakes tribes were invited to Albany, the colonial representatives hoped to work out these land deals at the Albany Conference as well. All 13 colonies were invited to the conference by Governor Delancey, but only seven sent representatives, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New Hampshire, all, save Maryland, being northern colonies. Geographically, the southern colonies had nothing to fear from the French, 
because they could look westward over unclaimed frontiers far west as the Mississippi River. For the northern colonies, however, it was a different situation. All of the colonies that sent representatives to Albany virtually had a French presence on all of their western borders. Now, the most prominent representative to attend the convention was Benjamin Franklin, who was 48 years at the time, and who led the Pennsylvania delegation. In his autobiography, Franklin writes that he was called to New York for the purpose of uniting the colonies under one government as far as might be necessary for their defense and other general important purposes. Franklin hoped to establish a union between the colonies under a central government, but not just for the purposes of defense, as the order from the Board of Trade had stated. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but I do think that it's significant that Franklin sought a permanent government over all of the colonies that would be sovereign and would accomplish other general important purposes. Of course, the central government suggested by Franklin was a central government based in North America that could potentially become a separate power structure that might compete with Parliament. And for some reason, that idea lacked a certain amount of appeal for the British crown. When Franklin arrived in Albany, he met Thomas Hutchinson, a representative from Massachusetts, and through a series of conversations, they realized many of their ideas were similar, and together they constructed a plan for the central government Franklin envisioned. After a few days of discussions with representatives from the native tribes, the colonies turned to matters of union, and it was at this point that Franklin and Hutchinson proposed their plan, which would become known as the Albany Plan of Union. The Albany Plan provided for a central government with two branches, a legislative and an executive. The legislative branch would be made up of the Grand Council, a body of representatives chosen by the assemblies of each of the colonies. The number of representatives from each colony would depend on what share of the overall tax revenue each state paid. This would give the most representatives to Massachusetts and Virginia. The executive branch would be made up of the President General, a singular executive officer appointed by the King of England, and given veto power over the Grand Council's resolutions, as well as the power to declare war. Now, the astute among you will hear these descriptions and realize that they sound similar to the legislative and executive branches laid out in our Constitution. Not identical, of course, but similar. Charles Ponal agreed, calling the Albany Plan the first Congress of the Colonies, the germ or seed of the Congresses of the United States. This is what I was talking about at the top of the podcast. From our perspective, we're able to see the seeds of our republic being planted 20 years before the American Revolution and 35 years before our Constitution. The representatives at the Albany Conference voted unanimously to approve the plan drafted by Franklin and Hutchinson. So every delegate sent by their assemblies voted for the plan. But there was a slight glitch. In order for the plan to take effect, each colony and its colonial assembly had to ratify it. But when it came time for ratification of the Albany Plan, not a single colonial assembly approved it. Every assembly repudiated the votes of its duly elected representatives to Albany. Somewhere there was a disconnect between the assemblies and their representatives. On the other side of the ocean, the Board of Trade received a letter from Thomas Ponal, the British secretary who had attended on behalf of the Board of Trade, informing them that the colonies planned to unify under a new government. Upon reading the proposal, the board rejected it as well and never even presented the plan to the crown. Franklin, who was understandably bitter about his plan being defeated, wrote in his autobiography that the colonial assemblies and most of the people were narrowly provincial in outlook, mutually jealous and suspicious of any central taxing authority. But Franklin went on to explain the twofold rejection. 
The assemblies did not adopt it, as they thought there was too much prerogative in it, and in England it was judged to have too much of the democratic. By prerogative, Franklin means that the colonies disliked the amount of power given to the central government because they did not wish to give up any of their autonomy, a struggle that would of course be played out somewhat bitterly at the Constitutional Convention over 30 years later. On the other hand, the Crown disliked the plan because it was worried about the independence that the colonies would have under a sovereign American government. Now, most of us would scoff at a government controlled by a royally appointed executive being called too democratic. Compared to the American Republican system we have today, this seems like only a shadow of freedom. But back in the days of the colonists, allowing the colonies to be ruled by an executive other than the king might as well have been something of a revolution. This was the end of the short-lived Albany plan, however, but it left behind an important legacy. In a related debate, a second, less well-known resolution was also adopted at the Albany Conference. According to Charles Ponal, the representatives considered the possibility of raising taxes to finance the upcoming war with France, and they firmly decided to refuse any further taxation of the colonists. Franklin, Hutchinson, and the other representatives foresaw the financial burden that the French and Indian War would inflict on Britain, and they anticipated that the colonies would be enlisted to minimize the fiscal damage. Their response was one of defiance. The colonists had had no voice in the decision to go to war, so why should they pay the bill for such conflict? The representatives of the colonies resolved collectively not to raise taxes on their citizens, but the individual colonies would later break this resolution— particularly those colonies under more strictly loyalist royal governments. The Albany Conference was the first time in the history of the American colonies that all of the colonies had been called together. Although only half of them actually were represented at the conference, the seed of a deeper colonial unity had been planted, and the colonies would soon discover common threads that would bind them together as co-revolutionaries, and later a single nation. The Albany Plan of Union and the resolution not to raise taxes were important events in the formation of the American political tradition, the first being a model for a future government of the separate colonies, and the second being a preliminary check on the power of the monarchy. Only a few decades later, the fears of the crown would be confirmed as the colonies united and successfully rebelled in the name of freedom from oppression and unfair taxation. Days of Revolution is brought to you by AmericanMajority.org, and is a podcast series written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson, and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes. 